0: Welcome to another episode of Conduct Detrimental. This week I am joined by the three-headed monster, Taryn Sharma, Mike Lawson, and Stephanie Weissenberger. What's up, gang?
1: What's up, gang? What's up, gang? How's it if going? We're, if we're
2: a monster, like what kind of noise would we make? Are we like a growling? Are we like, like roaring? Are we like Godzilla or like King Kong?
1: I hope we're more like Sully from Monsters Inc. Mm. Oh. We're nice monsters. Are we
0: aware of a three-headed monster? Is there a three-headed monster that exists that I'm not thinking of? Hydra? Isn't Hydra Ooh. three-headed? I got one. Hydra's three-headed. Buffy
3: and... from Harry Potter? What are you, yes. what are you
0: talking about? I, I actually think, uh, well, one of two, I think Doug Trio from Pokemon had three heads. Okay, that was a Diglett and you multiplied it by three, ended up with Doug Trio. And there's mm, a gonna... had a
1: dog in Greek and Roman mythology, but no. Mm.
0: Anyway, that being said, we are here for a special week. We have four interesting topics, uh, and I think the reason people like the show is I'm told in our feedback, uh, these are topics that most shows don't cover. So even, uh, Taryn, I know this is one of your favorite podcasts, part of my take, is not going to cover at least three of these topics. They'll probably cover one of them. But that said, just uh, I'll lay out the roadmap, and then uh, we will jump right into it. Number one, I think the biggest, let's say the most eyeballs on a sports story this week was the Shannon Sharp. Julio Jones, we'll call it maybe staged phone call, legitimate phone call, but there's definitely some uh, fun legal issues in there. No resolution as of today, Tuesday, May 25th. Uh, the second story, one that's not getting as much publicity as it probably should, we spent a lot of time on this podcast talking about the lawsuit between the minority owners of the Washington football team and Dan Snyder. Now we have an interesting lawsuit coming out of the baseball sphere. We have the minority owners of the Tampa Bay Rays suing the majority owner of the Rays. So we'll get into that, another fun area. And then third, we're going to get into a topic or a sport that we haven't got into, women's professional soccer. The NWSL has an interesting case upon us, Olivia Moultrie, as we've been told or Moultrie, one of the two. And, uh, yeah, she's a phenom soccer player, recently sued the NWSL, and we have an update on that legal proceeding with some fun precedent. And last but not least, a topic that we've been hitting early and often almost every week for the past couple months, name, image, and likeness, what's going down on NCA versus Austin? new states popping up with legislation, and all that fun stuff. But first, the lead story. I think this is a lead story. When Shannon Sharp, this past week, is a, on an episode of Undisputed, with Skip Bayless, who, uh, if you follow Twitter, I think everyone universally, guys, everyone universally hates Skip Bayless. Is that accurate? Does anybody like Skip Bayless? Yeah.
1: I think he's funny, oh, but yeah. Fans
0: must love him, right? Somebody must love him because he seems to get these big jobs on multiple networks. So someone must love him or they must love to hate him. But in the event, you know, he went from Stephen A over at uh, First Take and now he's at Undisputed at FS1. The reason I bring that up, everyone knows that ESPN, for the most part, is filmed in Connecticut. Now, Undisputed in FS1 is filmed in California. Why is that important? Shannon Sharp is doing an episode of Undisputed on Monday and I guess they're going over Julio trade rumors or I think Julio was spotted out wearing Cowboys gear somewhere. So they're like, oh, maybe he wants to go to the Cowboys. So in the middle of the show, Shannon Sharp says he's going to call Julio Jones. He's going to cold call him. Julio picks up the phone and Shannon Sharp just kind of says to him, hey, are you going to be leaving Atlanta? And he goes, man, I'm out of there. And they start talking about whether he's going to go to the Cowboys. And then at some point in this about minute and a half clip, the producers start saying, can you tell him he's on air? Can you tell him he's on air? And then as the phone is wrapping up, Shannon Sharp goes, hey, by the way, buddy, you're on the air. So they have this whole conversation. It seems pretty, you know, if you believe it, it seems like Shannon Sharp just cold, cold Julio Jones. He didn't know he was going to be on the air. And they recorded the phone call and they put it up. And that was the soundbite. Even Adam Schefter had to run with it, had to quote Undisputed as where that story was breaking. So Undisputed, got a lot of play. Skip Bayless is the co host he was kind of playing into it, being a little hush hush and you know, trying not to see he was in the background. So we have an interesting scenario. We heard news broke and questionably the phone conversation was not recorded. Was it recorded? But yeah, that's that's generally it. So I'm gonna open it up to the floor before we pack in the legalese. Guys, you guys have all seen the clip at this point. What are what are our thoughts? Do we think this is real? Do we think this is staged?
2: I think Julio absolutely knew what was going on. I think that they talked and this is not a recent thing. From what I've read, Julio Jones had asked for a trade within the past year and the Falcons have been looking into it. They're looking for a first round pick. I'm not sure that they're going to get that type of value. And I think that this is a tactic by Jones and, you know, maybe his agent in cahoots with uncle Shea Shea to uh, push the envelope a little bit, get him out of there, get him to a situation where he would be happier. And I'm really interested to see if this kind of forces Atlanta's hand.
1: I agree with that. I mean, I definitely think that if it was a ploy by Julio and his agent to kind of bring some attention to the issue, it was executed perfectly. I mean, Julio's acting skills by just not answering the phone right away, he let it ring for the perfect amount of time. And then he picked (laughs) up the phone and acted all casual. I mean, he executed it perfectly. I mean, I don't know. I think it was a smart ploy, but at the same time, it could almost make the Falcons not want to work with him as much just because I think doing something like that isn't necessarily a way to make the team that you're currently on very happy. But I mean I think it hopefully it works out for him in the end. I'm interested to see.
0: Let's go back to Taryn Who is Uncle Shay Shay?
2: Oh yeah, Shannon Sharp. That's his nickname. Uncle Shay Shay
0: Shay? Shay? Yeah. Yeah.
2: You're not a regular undisputed
0: viewer. I am not. I am not. I'm not I think,
2: either. Uh, I got a buddy who is super into it and he's always talking about it, but he always calls him Uncle Shayshay. Shay,
0: so Uncle Shaishay. Well, the well, I guess it's apropos why why I bring this up, right? I think I think we're now, you know, we're about 48 hours in. I think everyone's pretty confident that this was stage, are a little less than 48. When people listen to this would be 48 hours, people are pretty confident with stage. Now, why is that? If it wasn't stage, this is this is the fun part of this analysis, the reason why it's a sports little topic if it wasn't staged it's pretty much a per se violation of the two party consent law that occurs in california so we live in new york well i don't want to say everybody but i live in new york as a one party state that means that you just have to get the consent of one party to record a conversation so you know, if I'm on the line, uh, and I'm not gonna lie, I've done it before during my uh, deposition prep, I'm recording someone, I just wanna make sure I have, you know, I take the right notes if I'm recording a witness or if I'm recording a client. I just wanna make sure I have it right. I'm not committing any felonies. Normally I'll tell them what I'm doing I'm just recording it for my own sake, but you know, legally I wouldn't have to. California is a state that employs a two-party consent law. So both parties to this conversation, really all parties to the conversation have to be aware that it's being recorded. Now, why does that come into play here? If you just buy it and you just buy it at face value, the producers went out of their way to say, hey, please tell him he's being recorded. And that didn't occur until any point, probably like 90% into the conversation. So if you didn't have Julio Jones consent to record that and broadcast it, maybe you have some liability on FS1. Maybe you have some liability on Shannon Shar. I don't know what Skip Bayless involvement is, but let's throw Skip Bayless in because we don't like Skip Bayless. And there's a a world where they they could actually be charged for unauthorized recording of a telephone phone call. Now, separate question as to whether they will be charged with that. Number one, I don't think Julio would ever press charges. I just don't, I don't think Julio would ever want to do that for his look. But, you know, and then it's a different question, right? Is the district attorney going to prosecute that? It kind of reeks like it's a sham, right? This is something we'd see in like professional wrestling, you know, just some kind of storyline. Taryn, to the the point we bring up, right? Like I'm talking about undisputed. Everyone's talking about undisputed. If it's staged, which I think we're all on the same page at this point. It is a brilliant, brilliant marketing move. Because, you know, every, everyone's talking about the show. Adam Schefter, everyone had to acknowledge that the show was the one that recorded it. So, and I think also, separate aside from the show, it makes the Julio Jones story an A-level story. And everyone's talking about it. There's odds on it, all my little betting sites. Where's Julio Jones going to go? So, I think it's a brilliant move all around. Does anybody think it cheapens the show?
2: That show is purely there for entertainment. I mean, they spend like six months out of the year talking about whether LeBron is better than Jordan. It's just like, you know, it's circular conversation. So I think that this is a huge win-win for everyone involved, especially, you know, we're theorizing that this is planned out. I, I think that it worked out perfectly, like Steph said.
0: Yeah, I think just the the final, to put a pin in people that are, you know, I put polls up, uh, I put them just because, you know, I want to see what people are thinking. It was about the final poll, where about 60% thought it was staged. And uh, the only uh, the way I put the polls was because it was funny. like. 60% thought it was staged and the other 40% was the only other option I give said, no, a crime occurred because those are the only two options. Either it was stage or a crime was committed. So 40% of people, I don't know if they're being facetious, just messing with me, but 40% of people thought a crime was actually committed. So if people are trying to, and I gave, I, I spoke to someone at WEI, the Boston station, and I was basically saying, like, hey, if we're really trying to figure out this is staged or not, this would nowhere appear on Shannon Sharpe's timeline on Twitter. This would, there is no chance he would tweet this out, and if he did, legal would have told him to delete it a long time ago because. I mean, this is evidence of a crime, right? Like, you delete that, issue an apology. So we haven't heard anything for 48 hours, but, you know, my spider sense, if I worked in the legal department of FS1, I would tell Shannon Trump to take that off the air immediately, issue some type of apology, go on the apology tour, but that's not what they've done. So I think that tells you all you need to know that the fact that that video remains up there. We have some breaking news. Breaking news. It's not as much breaking news, but it's a story. Friend of the show, AJ Perez over at Front Office Sports, uh, is reporting that Fox is in a lot of trouble with the nfl and the atlanta falcons for running with that story so i know we all some shape or form retweeted that just now so you can obviously check that out there but there are ramifications so i I had the feeling right i think we're all kind of saying this thing is staged is that there's no lawsuit which doesn't seem like there will be i think this is making light of an nfl player i think it's making light of his situation i think it's painting the atlanta falcons in a bad light and this brings a lot of extra attention to a dispute that a player's having who's under contract with his team. So obviously the team is going to be annoyed. at this. I think they've been trying to trade Julio for a couple months. And maybe they weren't moving quickly enough for Julio Jones' liking. And now Shannon Sharp might get in trouble. The show might get in trouble. But I don't know. Now there's some, this article seems to be very well sourced. Uh, I think the NFL is pissed off. And you don't want to piss off the NFL when they control the TV rights and jacking up. Taryn, I'm seeing your face. Your eyes are lighting up. Are you reading the story as we're live?
2: Yeah, that's just massive, especially as it relates to, as you mentioned, the TV rights and Fox just re-upped with them. Can't feel good to have that strain on the relationship. You wonder what that means going forward, especially if, you know, something like Sunday Ticket comes up for grabs.
3: I think what's so funny is the comment thread that's going on right there. of like people trying to defend or being like, "Shen Sharp told them and it's like, no, but it was at the end of the segment. He already like said everything. And so somebody's comment was like, that's like getting a complete confession out of somebody and then telling them they complete the fifth. Another <laughs> that, interesting tidbit fun. in
0: this in the comment section, uh, AJ Perez reports that Skip Bayless and Julio Jones are both repped by the same agency, CAA. So it just reeks that the story is staged. So I, 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 as a gambling man, I put my money that it was staged at this point. We'll see what comes of it. I, I can't imagine we're going to hear all the stuff with the grapevines, but the fact that this is being ported on tells you that the it doesn't happen that often for a reason because the nfl likes to have their their fingerprints on everything guys anything else to add on shannon sharp and julio before we move on
1: i don't know maybe uh after the podcast i'll try and tweet at shannon sharp to get the get the real answer straight from the source.
0: stephanie you do have a track record for tweeting at blue check marks and having them respond to you not to
1: lie i do slightly slightly you did know.
0: interview mark lazary with the buck so i mean people like know who you are by the way Shout out to you, Stephanie. First of all, you started studying for the bar. So congrats on that.
1: Oh, thank you. It's going to be fun. You,
0: you spoke to Delaware undergrad?
1: Yes, Delaware, a sports law class.
0: And quoted for your first article on Urban Meyer with the Jaguar story. A friend that, of the show, John Vogel.
1: That's true. That is true. Lots of good See, things happening.
0: It's a good, good luck. So congrats to you. Okay. Now, next topic. Let's get into some business. The Tampa Bay Rays. I find this dispute really interesting. Taryn and I were talking about it this morning. There seems to be a growing need for attorneys in this space to be helping negotiate deals between entities buying and selling minority shares of teams. I had done some research for something for work on this Arctos SPAC. There's obviously, obviously a lot of uh, information out there on the buying and selling of minority teams. There's, the shares are going through the roof. Arctos is a SPAC that purchased a minority share of the Golden State Warriors that valued the team at $5 billion. So there seems to be a growing market for minority shares of teams. If you want to get into the industry and you're seeing you know, TV deals storing, people are trying to get in uh, all shapes and sizes into the minority shares of teams. So that brings us over to the dispute over in Tampa when there is an ongoing dispute between minority owners and majority owners, which kind of shows you, hey, maybe buying a minority share in a team isn't, you know, isn't all that great. So Taryn, why don't you fill us in on the legal dispute brewing in Tropicana?
2: Yeah. And it's like I mentioned to you, so much of whether being a minority investor is a good investment depends on who the majority owner is and how they run the team. So as we all know, the Rays have been trying to move out of St. Pete for a long time now. The TROP wasn't necessarily built for the Rays. They just kind of have lived there since they first came into existence. And so We have a suit that was filed by a set of minority owners, and they're alleging that Stu Sternberg, who controls about 85% of the team, a couple things. First, that he began secretly negotiating to sell an interest in the Rays to a Montreal-based group in 2014. And secondly, that he was depriving minority owners of profits while simultaneously charging them the taxes that they would owe. And so these minority owners are suggesting that these actions by Stu Sternberg have led to uh, some minority owners being squeezed out and, and selling their minority stakes for bottom barrel prices. Another complicating factor to all, all of this is that there's an ex- exclusivity clause in the Rays' lease at the TROP, which runs through the 2027 season. And so all of this is, is playing out in the courts. And simultaneously, the uh, St. Pete mayor came out today and he said that the suit is very concerning, that Sternberg should consider stepping away from the team. And he raised the possibility that the Rays have defaulted on the Tropicana lease. So, Mike, what do you think? What is the most concerning aspect here if you're Stu Sternberg?
3: Well, just to clarify, too, on the exclusivity clause you just mentioned, Also under that exclusivity clause, it barred them from negotiating to play elsewhere during the terms of this agreement as well. So you have the exclusivity where they have to play all their home games at the trial and you have this. They can't even negotiate. So what people are talking about now, like especially with you have the like you just mentioned, the mayor of of St. Petersburg. So the mayor of St. Petersburg, Rick Chrysler, he is saying, well, they might have breached our agreement here, our lease agreement by this negotiation, but we're not sure because we don't know the specifics of what they talked about. So if they can go back and and find, you know, email correspondence or phone calls, something like that about the conversations that he had with the Montreal group, so it's Stephen Bronfman and the Montreal baseball group, those are the people that he allegedly had these conversations with. It only kind of popped up in 2017 that he was, you know, talking about Montreal. I've mentioned this before where I think that Tampa Bay had a chance of going to Montreal. We had the 50 50 season going up to Montreal. And to your question, Taryn, where does Stu Sternberg go from here? So, Stu. Basically saying like, oh, these negotiations were for post-2027. You know, we, we are looking at options elsewhere after the drop. You know, we wanted to explore all of our options, either a new stadium or uh, potentially going to Montreal, doing a 50-50 split, something like that. I think that the biggest issue that Stu has against him right now, Sternberg owned 49% when he came in in 2004. Now he owns 85%. So Tam, what you were just mentioning, that squeeze of what he was doing with, he was not telling them the disbursements. And then what was happening was the minority owners were getting taxed at the level of the profits that Tampa Bay was making. So they were like, this isn't even worth it anymore. I'm selling my share. Sternberg was collecting those. Then he takes all the assets of of Tampa Bay, puts it in his own company that is managed by him. And then you have this 10% minority group, which is Robert Kleinert, Gary Markle, Stephen Waters, and a trust in Stephen Waters' name, and the McDougal Family Limited Partnership, who are now collectively, who only own 9.6%, suing Sternberg for this action that, Taryn, that you just mentioned. Now, the actual lawsuit only claims $30,000 in damages. And- they also want Sternberg's company that I just mentioned that he put all the assets into. Uh, they want them expelled as general partner. So I'm like a scope kind of things. It, it's like more bark than bite necessarily. Like the the the, the suit doesn't have high damages, but it's it's. Very eye-opening for what Sternberg was doing in kind of squeezing out these minority owners. Maybe in the same sense of Dan Snyder with what he was doing with the Washington football team. I don't know. Comparison, contrast, you can do whatever you want there. But I think what he also has to do here, especially Rick Kreisman has a lot of of power here. I, I mean, he said, I think you should step down as owner. He wasn't like saying he should, but he was like, you should seriously consider it. The complaint also alleges that Tampa Bay at one point had $400 million in cash and that they were using that money to pay off Sternberg and these two unnamed presidents. Now Sternberg, he refuses to, to give the plaintiffs the salaries of what they were getting paid. Currently, there's only two presidents in the Tampa Bay Rays organization, Matt Silverman and Brian Ald. So those two, they haven't made any comments yet, but that, that's in the allegations as well.
2: No, but- for sure that they weren't spending the money on the team. They consistently run one of the lowest payrolls in all of baseball. And I right. just wanted to, to hop back. You mentioned that group in Montreal, the Ma- Montreal Baseball Group, that the Bronfman family, they made their fortune with uh, the Seagram's Beverages. But Charles Bronfman was the majority owner of the Montreal Expos. So this is demonstrated interest and a history with Major League Baseball. It's not kind of popping out out of the blue.
1: I think another thing too, that kind of slipped under the rug is the fact that the Rays have been trying to redevelop Tropicana field site for a while. And apparently city council members last month said they're not even going to entertain any sort of agreement with the developer for this project until the Rays have pretty much said for whether they're going to be at Tropicana field still, or whether they're going to exit because based on their, uh, secret negotiations that they had over the past few months or however long. But I think it's not exactly helping the raise at all. I don't think the owner is helping the team. He's obviously pausing pausing these developments. And who knows how long this is gonna last because it seems like specifically the city council's members said they have to make it clear what their intentions are. And as of right now, there's so much gray that they haven't even uncovered yet. And so I think at least Tropicana field site is not going to be getting any sort of renovations anytime soon, whether or not that will be by the end of the year, maybe next year, who knows, but it doesn't seem like it's gonna be moving anytime soon.
2: And this is what they do, right, Steph? Like they they kind of hold these cities hostages uh, to, to get these sweetheart land deals, to get these sweetheart stadium deals where the taxpayer ends up footing the bill for a stadium that they have to pay to use they have to pay to go go to uh buy tickets it increases the the costs around the stadium and and it doesn't end up always giving back the economic benefit that it says so uh, yeah i i i think that this we've seen this song and dance over and over again whether it's montreal or what la was in football uh what the a's are doing with las vegas or portland now it's just typical of these owners.
3: So Stephanie, to your point, like St. Pete, they're, the city council, they really put their foot down. They're like, put up or yeah. shut up. Like you, you need to figure out what you need to do. And I think it's fair and Taryn to your point uh, to the, the sense of holding them hostage. I think that's more, that's more along the lines of what Oakland is doing. I, I less think of what what's happening here with Tampa. I kind of agree with the city council because now they're kind of confused being like, we we thought you were gonna have a proposal here to build a new stadium. And now we're hearing about these alleged negotiations. Like, why weren't you up front with us? Like you need to figure what you're doing out and, and then we'll we'll cover here. So that's I think I think that what you were talking about with like holding hostage kind of caters more to Oakland. And then we'll see what happens with the upcoming meetings that they have in Vegas and Portland to see what Oakland where Oakland goes. And we talked about that a couple of weeks ago on the pod. So but I think right now I think it's it's kind of a wait and see with what what happens here
2: yeah so So, just put a pin in this i i think that there is uh there's a lot that could come out in discovery here especially if these discussions were going on in 2014 when they didn't become public until 2017 and uh i i think this could end up being a story that drags out
0: And Taryn, you put a pin in it. I'll put another pin in it. We'll put two pins in at the same time. There's room for two pins. But I think what people kind of need to be mindful, which I learned really this past week during research for this project I'm working on at work, there doesn't seem to be a uniform standard set of agreement for minority owners vis-a-vis the majority owners. So we've talked on this podcast previous episodes about the dispute um, with the Los Angeles Chargers, how half the team, or not half, but I think it's a 36% is being held in trust, We didn't talk about it on this episode, but people are following us online. The attorney general, California, is intervening in that case. I mean, I guess he has standing because it's a trust in the state's case to intervene as a player in the case. Separately, you know, we're we're talking now about what minority shareholders in the Rays had. right? Did they have a right to know that the team was being uh, in talks to be moved over to Montreal? And then, you know, we talked over in Washington with, hey, if you try to sell your team, the majority one has the right to buy back your shares. So there's always little nuances underneath the top of just owning a team. I know in the research uh, that I was doing for my office, sometimes minority owners, you don't really get much. Maybe you get a seat and you get to listen on a boardroom, you know, the board meetings, maybe you get a luxury box uh, to look at the game, but you don't get much. So why do you get involved in this team? Sure, there's a cachet of owning, being a, calling yourself an owner of a team. But as we're seeing time and time again, Minority owners don't get much. It's, there's not really much in terms of power you get to have a team. And keep seeing more and more of these lawsuits. So by my count, that's three pretty public lawsuits, Chargers, Rays, and Washington football team, in the last couple of months. So, yeah, as long as these prices keep going up and you know people are aware of it, obviously the prices have skyrocketed since Steve Ballmer bought the Clippers. The prices are going up for majority ownership and also minority ownership. So expect to see more of these conflicts. Now, that said, let us move on to the third topic. This is more of a pure litigation topic. Over in the NWSL, now, this is the National Women's Soccer League. Now, the, I think the first time on the podcast, uh, it wasn't. this isn't the first time, National Women's Soccer League, I believe, was the first pro sport in America to return post-pandemic. For any of the sports, the NWSL got their S together. Now, I listened to a podcast a couple months back, Freddie Adu podcast. Freddie Adu was a 13-year-old phenom who played for DC United, and it was a really big deal. Maybe underneath the radar, uh, Olivia Moultrie is lighting it up for the NWSL, 15-year-old phenom. She's been signed with Nike for a number of years, and she's pulling a, a Maurice Clarett. if anybody remembers that lawsuit. Maurice Clarett sued the NFL to try to get early access to the league. The uh, rule in the NFL was that you could not play in the NFL. You weren't three years removed from your high school graduation. That is still the rule in the NFL. Maurice Claret tried to challenge that um, because he, he left Ohio State a few years early and unsuccessfully tried to challenge it uh, and then ended up going to, I think, the Denver Broncos in the fourth round. Didn't do much in the NFL. He's actually more known for his college career and the lawsuit, but he's also known for losing that lawsuit ultimately. Now, Steph, I'll turn it over to you. Olivia Moultrie, we thought she could be the next Maurice Claret but she did a little bit better than Maurice Claret. I'll turn it to you. What's
1: going on with Olivia? Yeah, well, I just want to draw attention to how good apparently she is. First of all, I know, Dan, you said that she had been with Nike for a few years. She signed a professional marketing deal with Nike at age 13 and has been training with the NWSL's Portland Thorns in the years since. And so she essentially sued the NWSL on antitrust grounds, highlighting the fact that on the men's side, like in Freddie Adu's case, Major League Soccer has signed numerous players under the age of 18 to professional contracts. And so her lawyers in the interim, at least while, because litigation obviously takes, it can take, it's definitely not immediate. And so in the interim, her lawyers requested the issuance of a temporary restraining order on the league's age rule, making her eligible to play immediately. And so This TRO could then be extended by the court, but it'll essentially allow the court to examine the merits of a preliminary injunction in more depth. And so Judge Karen Immergut issued this TRO in favor of Olivia on Monday, which is now opening the door for her to be offered a professional contract by an NWSL team. But here's the little trigger here. The TRO is only valid for 14 days. And so it could be extended. Immergat issued the TRO on a number of factors, one of which was that the ongoing collective bargaining agreement negotiations between the league and the NWSL Players Association would not be impacted in any way if this injunction was found for Olivia. And weirdly, the NWSL tried arguing that the costs of signing a player under the age of 18 could affect overall roster spending or competition which in my opinion doesn't really make sense considering she might be better than a lot of people who are already on the roster. And it's also like – it kind of seems like this appears to be more directed at reducing the NWSL's overhead costs than benefiting competition, in my opinion. seems like they're kind of trying to protect their themselves.
0: Here's my take on this. I mean, listen, I, I, don't, I don't mean to speak ill of, of professional soccer – I don't know anyone in this league, and I'm just being very candid. You know who I know, Olivia Moultrie, and you know who I knew back in the day. I didn't know anything about MLS. I knew Freddie Adu because there's a there's a beacon of hope to the league. You want to allow this this athlete into the league. So Stephanie, you said you said one thing uh, that I think is important. This is a win, but it's a temporary win. It's a temporary restraining yeah. order. It's a 14 day injunction. So the league can't stop her for 14 days. She's free to sign with any team. If you believe the rumor mill, she's been practicing with the Portland Thorns. And it looks like um, she's been practicing with the Portland Thorns forever and scrimmaging with them. So she's probably going to sign with them. I don't think that's saying anything so controversial. The problem is, at the same time, this is a double a double sports law issue. The same time that this injunction is coming down, the NWSL is negotiating their first ever CBA. So there's this weird little niche in sports. And I, I don't know if we talked about it on the podcast. I know we talked about it on Twitter things that are technically violative of antitrust law leagues and players unions are allowed to do under what's called a non-statutory labor exemption if the union in there and they're right they say hey the league is not allowed to do x right they're not allowed to basically hold the draft like right? the NFL draft NBA draft those are all illegal it's all illegal wage you know wage discrimination uh, you know labor discrimination you can't slot people into like rookie wage scales that's a per se violation but the union allows for it and they do it in the CBA. So if the CBA, this NWSL CBA that they come to terms on at some point, I think they're, they're thinking it's going to happen in the next couple of weeks. If that occurs and the union makes a rule that says that players can't be 15, they have to be, they have to go to college for a year, go to college for two years. And all of a sudden Olivia is S O L again. I don't, I don't think we talked about on the podcast, but it's, it's kind of unfair. You know, in the NFL context, people will know for a period of time, Matt Stafford, Aaron Rodgers, Matt Ryan, that era of NFL quarterbacks were the highest paid players in the league just because they were, and I think Cam Newton, they came into the league at a time where just first round picks were the highest paid players in the league. And the union got around it and they said, hey, we can't allow our first round picks to make more money than the vets. So let's artificially deflate their salaries. So the unions actually, uh, it's not really fair. I don't really know how you get around it, can hurt the incoming players rights at the table there's no way around it and there's incoming players from joe burrow up and down right you know for the first round pick every single year to trevor lawrence they don't have any rights when you negotiate these cba so there's a world where hey these players are like let's not pay olivia moultrie a ridiculous salary let's not have a bidding war for her. let's save that money for us let's save that money for the veteran players so we'll see i don't know i think it's interesting though
2: dan so you don't know anybody in this league you don't watch like the women's world cup or anything like that Megan you don't know who Mia Hamm is?
0: Hold on, hold on, relax. I know who Megan Rapinoe is. Does Megan Rapinoe play in the NWSL? Yes, I didn't know that.
2: She just had a, a game, I think, in Portland, and she like talked a bunch of smack to their fans. I read an article I, about But I know uh, about Crystal the WNBA.
0: Sabrina Ionescu. She's gonna win me in my seventy to one bet on New York Liberty winning the WNBA title.
2: She's she really good. She's really good.
0: Tell me more about your NWSL okay. knowledge besides those three players, Taryn.
2: No, no, no. I only know, I only oh, know these players.
0: Oh, you only know three players. So, oh, okay. And I only knew one. Congrats, Taryn.
2: You said you didn't know any. But, no, I, I'm saying that, that I, I only know them because of the women's national team, the Olympics and the World Cup and stuff like that. But I'm just saying that, it's yes, it, it does bring more notoriety to their league if they have a young superstar like this. In the same way that I cared about D.C. United because they signed – ready to do when he was like 12 or whatever Uh, a point that i want to bring up about the decision this u.s district court judge she wrote in the opinion plaintiff has presented persuasive evidence that each day that passes with the age rule in place represents a missed opportunity for the plaintiff's potential professional soccer career now i want to know if this stands up if this goes to a, a even higher circuit court or whatever if this stands up is this something that people who are trying to challenge the one and done rule are going to be able to use as precedent. Is this something that, um, that people that like Maurice Claret were trying to challenge the NFL's age rule where you have to be, uh, what is it? Three years removed from your graduating class. Are are they, is this going to be effective fodder for them?
0: I don't think so. I, I, you, you would hope so because it's precedent on the books, but, Right now, you can't really compare. It's like apples to oranges. You know, we have a league, the NWSL, that does not have an, a binding CBA on the players. They maybe will at some point. But the NBA, you know, in the, in the CBA have, allows for a lot of things that are violent of law. So it's not going to have any, any real precedent, you know, any, any binding precedent on, on the NBA or NFL or any league with the CBA. So it's interesting. I mean, you'd hope it would. Um, but we'll see. I mean, listen, Taryn, I am a, a supporter of women's college basketball. I made a bracket this year. Okay, I'm, I'm trying – I have two daughters. I have a second hey, one on the way. Girl dad times two. Girl dad times two. So this is – the NWSL topic is, is going to be a topic. And, Taryn, I, by the end of this week, I'm going to know double-digit NWSL players. How about that? Catch, right, me outside, not- Catch me outside, Taryn. Catch me outside. Anybody else uh, on the NWSL topic? Mike? My-
3: Here's my prediction. Portland Thorns – sign Olivia in the 14-day window. She ends up getting an extension until a hearing. like she, She's going to have a preliminary injunction hearing, which is going to be, any in the next time, 30 to 40 days out from that extension. And she goes on her merry way, playing for the Portland Thorns.
0: Okay, fourth topic of the day. Now, again, uh, we mentioned it. When uh, July 1st rolls around, it's obviously going to be chaos, but if you're really paying attention, we've always said that this, this is about the two-week build to that July 1st deadline is when you're going to see some real fireworks from the NCAA if they want to fight it, other states if they want to fight it, other states if they want to pass laws. In the past couple weeks, we've heard some rumblings of some pretty big states that are about to or uh, trying to, about to enter the NIL conversation. So Mike, I know it's a lot. We have a looming Alston decision. We've got some rumblings on the NIL level, maybe some NCA NIL. Why don't you fill us in on all the latest and greatest uh, at the intersection of college sports and the law?
3: So we, we talked about this a couple episodes ago with the kind of just all of the states that are are lining up here. We've got July 1st coming quick. We have Georgia, Florida, New Mexico, Mississippi, and Alabama, who has a July 1st, 2021 effective date. NIL bills are, are going to an effect July 1. Now we have Ohio is the most recent state that has come out with a proposed bill of their own. And what is specific about this one is they have an emergency provision. So they are trying to rush it and get it passed because their emergency provision says that it will be effective on July 1st of 2021 as well. Now, the athletic director for Ohio State, Gene Smith, has been working with Ohio legislators for a couple of years to get a bill on the books ever since California and Florida passed their bills. They were very big advocates for that. COVID kind of slowed down their legislature. So like a lot of their bills just didn't uh, pan out. So this this was a long time coming. Ohio State, we have Cincinnati as well, our big schools uh, with potential athletes to, to earn name, image, and likeness. I, I think really the only interesting part of this is in the emergency provision of this bill, which is, is trying to get it passed by July 1st, they state the reason for it. They say the reason for such Necessity is to provide intercollegiate athletes in this state the right to control their name, image, and likeness before the athletic season begins for the 2021-2022 academic year. Therefore, this act shall go into media effect. That is just jargon because the actual reason why this emergency provision is here is because the three biggest rivals of Ohio State, Alabama, Georgia, and Florida – have states that are passing effective bills July 1st. So Ohio State was like, we need to get in here because we need the competitive edge along with our largest rivals. That is the actual reason. So I think that's an interesting part here, but obviously with legislative bill, the jargon it's gotta be, and they want to be proponents and they are advocating for their athletes to gain NIL. But the real behind the curtain reason is because they're competing with these. now. Dan, to your point here, the next steps we have before any of this kind of happens. We have Scotus's decision for Austin. that's coming that's coming to a, a head here we're expecting that decision to come out after the oral arguments were uh, a couple months ago. So end of May into early June, we're, we're expected to have uh, some sort of decision on the Elston case here. Now that's an indirect impact, right? Like that's not a name, image, and likeness case. That's uh, impermissible benefits and, and um, illegally capping the amount that players can get on these extra, uh, extra permissible benefits and things like that. So, but that's something that does have an indirect impact on name, image, or likeness also what we have is the, uh, the ncaa has a their division one council meeting uh, at the end of june i think it's june 20th i'm not exactly sure but they have their meeting at the end of june in which they said that they were going to propose ideas to change their name image and likeness and the bylaws and, and have some sort of proposal themselves so basically what we have is kind of everything coming to a point i mean july is coming up really fast I and mean, we're already at the end of may i can't even believe this but i'm going to kick it to the floor here what, what do you guys think of, of what's happening with name members like this and how fast is coming up
2: yeah i think you're absolutely right as to ohio state's motivations for it and i mean they're very clearly proponents of this neeraj Antani, the uh the state senator who is proposing this bill he gave his press conference at ohio state on monday and then on tuesday ohio state announced the creation of the platform, which is, you know, similar to things that we've seen with Texas, with uh, with Dan's favorite, Nebraska. It is a platform to allow student athletes to make the most of their name, image, and likeness rights, and this is in conjunction with a company called Open Doors. Yeah, this is for sure because they were worried about losing their competitive edge. It's not that those teams are their chief rivals uh, on the playing field, but they definitely are their chief rivals when it comes to recruiting and recruiting is the lifeblood of any program so yeah i, I think that it's going to be really interesting to see if they can get this passed uh, the state senator who uh, proposed it he said that he anticipates that it'll pass and it's really exciting to see this catching on and getting passed in more big states
0: i was watching these states pop up and mike as you've mentioned the five states currently that have an nil are all based in the Southeast uh, in some way, shape, or form they have some SEC schools. So my bold, not really a bold prediction, but that the SEC was going to force the rest of the other schools and states and neighboring states to follow suit, be it Louisiana, I think what other states have not been accounted for, Tennessee over, you know, all the states, you know, that that area of the country is in the, in the recruiting war. I, I went on um, Tennessee sports radio, Knoxville, And I think they're legitimately concerned that everyone's just going to go to the neighboring states and they're going to go uh, further down south to Florida or Alabama and go that route. So it doesn't shock me uh, that we're hearing rumblings that Ohio State, one of the top schools programs in the country, is following the NIL lead. Texas, you know, Texas Longhorns are part of every conversation. California is already there. The one that we haven't mentioned. California is. At least there's been talks to expedite their timeframe. It's which is only fair because California started the NIL conversation, and they've since been left behind because they have a later effective date than other states. But you know, the, the one thing I want to add on this NIL front: um, some I've seen some people kind of misread misread the situation. Alston has no impact on NIL. It does not matter what the Supreme Court does. The NIL case is going to ensue no matter what. The only thing the only thing that can stop the I'm calling it NIL chaos. I don't really know what else to call it. The, state, the chaos of some states having the ability to, for their athletes to earn compensation, other states having nothing, not NCAA name image, and likeness, no nothing, is the federal government stepping in. We saw a report, I'm not sure who it was from, but on the college sports level, college football level, that there could be NCAA uh, coming forward their name, image, and likeness maybe by the July 1st deadline. I know Mark Emmert was hoping that would happen. Um, and then maybe there's going to be a last minute push by the federal government to, to get their bill into effect in which case there might still be an injunction to try to push these Florida deadlines and these July 1st deadlines back. So I don't think we've seen the last of this fight. And I think, you know, we're just just watching this. Uh, I think we've seen a number of high-profile athletes at this point move to NIL states in the hope that they can uh, maybe get a jump uh, on earning some money. Yeah, I don't know. I I think this whole space is fascinating. I don't know exactly how it's going to work out. I know I've been approached by different people that are trying to start businesses and trying to make money off of college athletes, but like, I don't know if you if you have if you think you know what the NCA is going to do and you're saying you're the NCA is going to do this that I don't think you really know. I think it's just going to be a complete unprecedented s show. Use your imagination as to what that means, guys. Anything else on name, image, and likeness?
3: Friend of the pod, Kevin Noon, actually was the one who kind of jumped in our DMs about Ohio's recent bill. So that's how I ended up kind of diving into this. But uh, so just wanted to give him a shout out for for putting that in front of us.
0: Shout out to Kevin Noon. One other piece of uh, notes before we get into the fun What to Watch For segment. I don't know. I, I, I missed the days. a little I was getting annoyed with Tony Busby stuff, and now I miss the days when we have Tony Busby, we have Rusty Harden. The new news today, the court docket is, I guess, out on the scheduling order as to when Deshaun Watson is going to be deposed. So anyone that's in the litigation world, I, anybody can tell you they're not reporting anything so crazy. From a case from inception to its end, I don't know, it takes a year and a half if you really want to take a case all the way out. If you're handling 20 plus trials, I don't know, add another add another six months to that because you have to have trial every two weeks, right, if you're, if you're going to try all these cases. So the news today is that according to the scheduling order, Deshaun Watson is not allowed to be deposed prior to february 22nd of 2022 that's nine days after this year's super bowl so that tells you one thing if these cases are not settled this is confirmation we're not even going to be all the way done with discovery by the super bowl so you know uh, if you want to add on trials and motion practice and all that fun stuff you're looking at the earliest right um legitimately of a trial date in the spring of 2021 so that's going to take you all the way into to next off season really this time next year so, yeah, I know I'm not, not confident this thing is going to, you know, I, I don't care what people are reporting. To settle a case of this magnitude, 20 different parties, all different sensibilities, all different financial backgrounds, it is very hard to do. So I don't see that happening anytime soon. Anybody, anything else on Deshaun Watson before we move yeah, on?
2: You, you got to think that this is really going to affect the Texans Super Bowl chances.
0: Well, it might not affect the Texans Super Bowl chances, but it might, might uh, be a little caution for teams like the Philadelphia Eagles, or the 49ers that are, are in talks, even the Packers that have, have at least inquired of Deshaun Watson. It's going to hang over for the team the whole year. I mean, I don't know, any lawyer could have told them that, but now it's written in stone in the scheduling order. So interesting. Okay, moving on. Uh, we will uh, put this in the segment, which uh, I don't know. I, I I have fun with this one. I have. Uh, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna hit cleanup today. Who wants to lead us off in what to watch for?
2: I'm all about the NBA playoffs right now. The first game between the Knicks and Hawks in MSG was absolutely electric. The shush from Trey Young and then Bill de Blasio, New York basketball fan, Bill de Blasio saying that Trey Young should stop hunting for fouls. It's just really good theater right now. I'm really looking forward to watching game two.
1: Kind of going off of that, that was what I was going to say was my what to watch for. I'm... This playoffs is actually shaping up to be, so far, very entertaining. I mean, every single game one was kind of a nail-biter, in my opinion. I mean, both teams from every single conference really put it all out on the court. And at least for me, I love a good underdog. So the fact that Devin Booker and Chris Paul showed up and beat the King, uh, I think that Next game is about to start. Game two is about to start. So I'm excited to see whether the Lakers can beat the Suns because I think if the Suns go up 2-0, they might might have a chance of, you know, LeBron might not be in the championship. So we'll see.
3: I am also watching the NBA playoffs, but that's not my what to watch for. I, I, I the, the Suns-Likers game was insane. As much as I, I, I love the, the Knicks game, too, and I'm a Sixers fan, so I'm just rooting for them, but it, the, every game is nuts. My what to watch for is in the boxing and uh, ultimate fighting world, so we've got our Floyd Mayweather fight coming up with Logan Paul. I think it's going to be entertaining nonetheless. Also, on the ultimate fighting world, I'm looking forward to – this is a little bit ways down the way, but McGregor-Poirier 3 – uh, has been announced. July. Uh, I'm very excited to to watch that kind of play out. What about you, Dan? What's your what to watch for?
0: So uh, I wagered. Uh, oof, let's see if anyone's F1 fans on this, but you guys know I, I follow F1 uh, religiously. This the fight. It was a race this past weekend at Monaco. So I have this fun little thing I do on my betting sites. If there is a late scratch, or if there's news that comes from Mr. Schefter or Mr. Woj. Um, I can, if I can catch the betting line, just right, might get a little bit of an edge on the field before the line moves, all that fun stuff. So this past weekend, but, uh, Charles Leclerc, who is, uh, the Ferrari's main driver, he's uh, no one, everyone's looking at me like I'm crazy, but he had the pole. He was in the number one position and for whatever reason, uh, his car, and I can explain the specifics, but his part of his car broke right before the race started. So put it this way, the super favorite, really one or second, first, or second favorite to win the race. Was ruled out of the race five minutes before the race started. So uh, I was all excited to uh, to make that wager, uh, basically, him losing head to head against any possible driver, which is an automatic win, if you caught it in the right sense. But they voided my bet and it was really depressing. So, you know, it ended up being just a really sad story. So, what am I looking forward to? I'm looking forward to the lovely drive to survive next season when they explain how Charles Leclerc in his hometown of Monaco has not finished a race in his entire career. So I'm tooting the F1 bandwagon. Um, uh, I think you guys will be in depth one Drive to Survive, good show. And I'm continuing to uh, devour my book, Loose Balls by Terry Pluto. Excellent, excellent book. I am hysterical every day with this. But if anybody has any other book recommendations on sports, I will take those too.
1: I actually just bought um, Kevin Garnett's new book. Ooh. I haven't started it yet because I've Literally bought it two days ago, but I'm looking forward to reading that. And I also at the same time bought Mamba Mentality. Can't believe
2: he's gone.
0: Well, that'll put this episode of Conduct Detrimental in the books. Wallach Legal is where you can find uh Dan Wallach, myself, Dan Lust at sports law lust. Mike is at Mike underscore son of underscore law. Taryn is at TK Sharma Law. Stephanie is at S Weissenberger underscore. And is that Steph explains it all like Clarissa explains it all. And if you watch that Nickelodeon documentary, like I recommended, you would know who Clarissa is. With that being said, we will see you next week on another episode of Comic Venture